we have been in um, John chapter 11 for going on, going on seven weeks now, and I believe we've needed every bit of it. Um, I believe it's been good for us to camp out here um, on the miracle, the sign that Jesus is uh, about to do or has done now. As we consider the reality of death, as we consider the hope of the resurrection, it's been important for us to pay attention to the confessions of faith and the power of God's sovereignty. I have plans to finish this chapter today, and we'll see what the Holy Spirit allows us to do. And so over the past several weeks, we've covered the the greatest, I think, and the most remarkable sign that Jesus performed during his public earthly ministry, and a sign that, that really, in John's gospel, essentially brings that public ministry to a, to a close. The Jews, and all men, really, um, they were often divided. Whenever Jesus did something, really anything at all, Whenever he did a miracle, whenever he would speak, um, even sometimes when he would leave them and go spend time by himself, men were divided. This, uh, this time is no exception. I don't often do a good job of titling sermons, and this is no exception, um, but I've entitled this one, To Gather Into One. And the truth that we need to see here today, as we work through this, is that God's plan for His people and His plan for the glory of His name is bigger than anyone could think or imagine. God's plan for His people and the glory of His name is better than any of us think or imagine. Put it in the words of an old, of a very old man near the end of his life, a man named John Newton. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. John chapter 11, I want to read verses 45 to the end of the chapter, verse 57. John eleven forty five. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. 
They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come up to the feast? Uh, that he will not come up to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. God, it is um, our prayer that you would help us to understand these things today. That we would see and understand um, your plan of salvation. To redeem, to call together a people for your own possession. For the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. For what did Christ die? For what did Christ die? Not for whom, that's not the question I'm asking right now, but for what did Christ die? John Piper in his book, um, Ten Ten Reasons Jesus Came to Die, he lays out in that book, Ten Reasons Jesus Came to Die. To destroy hostility between races. To give marriage its deepest meaning. To absorb the wrath of God so that we would escape the curse of the law. To reconcile us to God. To show God's love for sinners. To show Jesus' own love for us. To take away our condemnation. To bring us to God and to give eternal life to all who believe in Him. I'm sure that we could probably think of a few other reasons Jesus came to die. Not the least of which is what he mentions at the outset of this chapter, back in verse 4, when he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Of course, he was speaking specifically there about Lazarus' illness and the glory that would result in his being raised from the dead. But that was to point to Jesus' own death and resurrection. And glorification. You might remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians in that great hymn in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. He, he instructs the Philippians to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he's got to tell us who Christ Jesus is. He says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, that's why Jesus came and died. He died for the resurrection. He was resurrected and and glorified for for the glory of the Father. God's plan for His people and the glory of His name is much bigger than we ever ask or think or imagine. And so at the end of this chapter, John 11, the Apostle John marks the close of really what we have called as we've worked through this, uh, the book of the signs. The book of the signs and the book of the glory. Chapter 12 kind of transitions us to that second section, the book of glory. 
really begins in chapter 13 when, when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper. We'll get there, but think about that. The book of glory begins with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. At this point, uh, Jesus has performed several miraculous signs. And those signs are given to, to testify to his identity that he is the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God. And they're given to persuade people to believe that, really, that Jesus is who he claims to be. These signs are given to, to convince people to trust in Jesus' words, in his, in his teachings. They are given so that we would confess, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's what Martha said. Today, many often, um, we, we often think, many often think, that if God would just give us a sign, if God would just, if God would just give us something that proves His existence, then people will believe. Meanwhile, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims His handiwork. To put it a little more um, negatively, sort of, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 explains, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The heavens, for example. So they're without excuse, those who deny Him. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Well, maybe what God really needs to do is give us a sign that would just teach us about Him specifically. Well, Hebrews chapter 1, first couple of verses of the book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Well, in lieu of that, maybe he could give us a sign that would just simply prove the resurrection for us, which is kind of the, the holy grail of faith healers, right? Resurrection. Luke chapter 16, verses 30 and 31, Jesus tells a story and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they refuse to listen to God's word, even the most incredible of miracles will not convince them to repent and believe in Christ. That's clear from even this passage in John chapter 11. And the, and the miracles and the signs are they're meant to point us to Christ's words. They're meant to point us to his teachings. They're meant to point us to his claims. Not just the teachings to be a good person or to be nice to one another, but his teachings and his claims. Remember several times in, in John's gospel alone, he has claimed to be, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. This is God the Son. 
This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, when Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. When people tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, and and they will say that often. When they tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, you, you can say, if you can say this without too much snarkiness, well, you've never read the Bible. The signs that he performed pointed to his claims to be the Son of God. And they also pointed to his call, his message, his call to repent and believe in him. Listen to the, his first teachings in each of the four Gospels accounts. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the first thing that he teaches. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a summary of his teaching. Or maybe I should say, this is the highest application of Jesus' teaching and preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moving to Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, after John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the same message. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God, which is repent and believe in him, in the gospel. Jesus came to preach the gospel. And he clearly explains what the gospel is in his first, his kind of first recorded teaching in John's gospel. Which is actually, he has a couple of conversations before this. But his first recorded teaching, lengthy teaching, in John's gospel is actually a private conversation between himself and Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answers Nicodemus and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus doesn't understand that. He gets hung up on the born again part. And so Jesus would go on to explain in in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And here in today's passage, by the time we get to Lazarus and the empty tomb, we can see that the initial responses of the people who witnessed this miracle, their initial responses actually actually parallel uh, the responses of those who saw him weeping. Just look back up in verse... 
35, Jesus wept. In verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Jump down to verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some saw Jesus as a compassionate Savior. Some saw him as something else. Some believed. Others ran and told the authorities. Refused to believe. It's actually similar to what happens in Acts chapter 13, where we read in verses 47 and 48, um, this is the end of a sermon. It says, for, the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, some believed and some didn't. And this was God's will. Romans chapter 9 explains God's sovereignty over salvation like this. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's Romans chapter 9. And when the gospel is proclaimed, when the word of God is preached, when it is shared with our children, when the word of God, when the good news of Jesus Christ is, is spoken to our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, there will be division here we can see that division again in these verses 45 and 46. Some looked upon him with compassion, saw him as being compassionate, and some did not believe. Some of these Jews that had followed Mary there in verse 45, when she hurried from the house and out to meet Jesus and then followed both of them, both Mary and uh, Jesus, to Lazarus' tomb and witnessed his resurrection, John says that they believed in him. We don't really know the extent, or maybe we, maybe we could put it this way. We don't really know the, the quality of their faith. That might not be the right way to say it. We don't know the depth of their belief. But we can assume that they've made some sort of profession that Jesus is the Christ. And remember, even, even Martha... Just in the previous several paragraphs there, she's, she's made two clear statements of faith. She says in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She is correct about that. That is a statement of believing God. And then in verse 27, she says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She's made those two clear statements of faith. But what's also clear and what is clear to us is that even she doesn't fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. He's been in there four days. If you roll away that stone, he stinketh. Don't do it. 
And this crowd of believers here, verses 45 and 46, they're set in comparison and, and in contrast with those in verse 46 that go back to the Pharisees and report what they have seen. There's division in the group, in the crowd. There's division between those who believe in him and those who went back and told on him. Anyone, anyone willing to confess Jesus as the Christ faced consequences. Remember the parents of the man who had been born blind? Back in chapter 9, verse 22, we read this about them. Basically, they were asked by the leadership, by the Jews, if these things were so, if he had been born blind and then now could see. And His parents said, that these, said these things because they feared the Jews. They basically said, go and ask him yourself. Because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so these people in verse 46, who were reporting on him, were motivated by fear. They were motivated by fear of man. They were not evangelizing. They were not bringing the good news to the Jewish leadership with a spirit of of joy, but, but they were going to them with hostility. And fear. These people who suppose that they are the people of God, they are growing in their division. And I want to assure you that this is, this is why Jesus came. For what did Christ come? I asked that question at the beginning. For what did Christ come? He says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, John writes in his introduction. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And that's what's happening here. Some will reject and others will believe. And so the religious leaders, beginning in verse 47, um, they do what religious leaders do. They form a council to discuss the matter. They call a meeting. And during this council session, something interesting happens. Something nobody recognized at the time. Something nobody understood when they heard the words. And that is that the high priest actually made a prophecy. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. 
Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, a little bit of background. By themselves, the Pharisees, they couldn't take any any legal action against Jesus. The highest uh, Jewish authority in the land at this time, under the Romans, of course, the highest authority, Jewish authority, was the Sanhedrin, this council. And this council is made up of both Pharisees, who were kind of strict legalists. They were on the, on the far right side of the political spectrum. And the Sadducees, who, who denied uh, any, any existence of any form of resurrection. Um, they only held to the law and not the rest of the Old Testament. They were on the far kind of left left side of the political spectrum. And the chief priests uh, who were those who worked in and around the temple. And the chief priests and the, and the high priest were, were Sadducees. They were of the Sadducee kind of party here. And so these two political opposites, and, and I say political, but it's a religious political opposites, they needed to work together in order to put a, a final stop to this pesky miracle worker. Their common enemy, Jesus, was enough to overshadow the huge differences that normally stood between these two groups. But this is not merely a, a meeting. This, this isn't just a, a session of a group of people, probably about 70 of them, by the way. This is a trial. According to the, the Mishnah, which is a, a study of the Jewish law, in death penalty cases, a guilty verdict could not be handed down on the same day as the trial. In death penalty cases. Also, additionally, it couldn't be handed down if the one on trial was not present, if he was not there. See, when they, when they will arrest him and try him in the coming weeks, really... Um, probably in just a little over a week, but as the rest of the book unfolds, as they arrest him and and try him, put him on trial, we need to understand they have already, at this point here, found him guilty. They are going through some formalities later, but they have already found him guilty. And the question before the council today, as they begin these deliberations, is what are we to do? That's the question they ask each other. And there are two ways that we can look at this. It either means, what are we to do next? Or it could mean, what are we accomplishing? Jesus is over there raising the dead. Jesus is over there saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is over there preaching that, preaching a message of of freedom and salvation and redemption. What are we doing? They've been trying to shut him up. They've been trying to kill him, at least since the middle of chapter 5. And they can't stop even just one man. What are we accomplishing? Can you see the disdain that they have for Jesus here? They call him this man. 
They say, this man performs many signs. This man who must not be named. What are we to do? Verse 48 makes it very clear what they believe the consequences will be if he continues with his ministry. Two things are likely to happen. They say, first, everyone will believe in him. Now, obviously... This is an exaggeration. Yet think of the massive crowds that have followed him across the Sea of Galilee when he fed thousands and thousands of people. And then they followed him across the sea. They tracked him down. Everyone will believe in him. These are the same people, the ones who tracked him down, followed him across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, uh, the same people that Jesus understood in verse 16, uh, chapter 6, verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were come, about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to, again to the mountain by himself. When they say everyone will believe in him, there's actually something to that. Not believe in him as Savior, but come and make him king. Wherever Jesus went, people followed him. Some were amazed at the authority with which he taught. Others were just uh, incredibly uh, kind of stupefied at his, the signs that he performed. And these members of the council, they were used to the people coming to Jerusalem. They were used to people coming to the temple. They were used to people coming to the priests for their various feasts and festivals, for their religious needs, like atonement. What would happen if they went to Jesus instead? What would happen if everyone believes in him and goes to him instead of coming to us? The Romans will take away our place and our nation. They are concerned that the Messiah would be a warrior king, leading a rebellion, one who would fight for independence from Rome and lead the people out of their oppression. And the council understood that the Roman authorities, that Rome would not tolerate any rebellion. And they were afraid that if Jesus would lead this mass uprising, that Rome would send in troops and destroy their place. That means their temple, the place where God dwells with his people. Of course, they were jealous for their own power, but they understood that as God's covenant people, their authority over Israel was centered on the people's ability to worship. Take away the temple, take away the promised land, and the people would have no need for priests or law experts or scribes. History had shown that, or at least the people would think that they had no need for those things. History had shown that as they were hauled into captivity. You may be one step ahead of me uh, in seeing the ironies here. The first irony, I don't know if you're thinking about this one, is that uh, because of an uprising in 70 AD, Rome, history tells us, Rome actually sent troops into, into Jerusalem and they utterly destroyed the city, including the temple. And that temple has never been rebuilt to this day. In fact, it wasn't until 1947 that Israel was even a nation again. And even then, they still don't have a temple. 
and therefore they have no sacrificial system, no place to offer their sacrifices, no way to atone for their sins. But the bigger irony, other than the irony of history, the bigger irony is that John has already explained that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The bigger irony is they don't need the temple anymore. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21, John explains that in the future, he says this, he explains his vision, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then later in verse 22, it says simply this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. They were afraid of losing their temple. They were afraid of losing the promised land, but God had plans for a a better temple and a bigger promised land. God's plan for his people and the glory of his name is bigger than any of them could think or, or imagine. Rome will come in and take away our place, our temple. They will take away our land. Well, if you would trust in Christ, you don't need those things. But to just to kind of lay on a little bit thicker irony here, John explains Caiaphas's prophecy that he inadvertently makes in verses 49 and 50. So 49 again says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. This was, he was a Sadducee, and the Sadducees argued like this. Uh, They were very combative. You know nothing at all. Uh, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. This really is kind of the height of irony. He's suggesting that if they would sentence Jesus to death uh, in order to save or really preserve the status quo of the people of Israel, that that's what they needed to do, to preserve the status quo. In saying this, the the words die for the people, he's actually using sacrificial language. He's a high priest. He knows exactly what he's talking about. It's better for one man to die for the people. Now, clearly, he doesn't mean this in in the Christian sense, as we think of Jesus dying for the sins of his people. Um, Rather, it's more like saying that Jesus is devoted to death, like a like a certain sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Listen to God's instructions as he lays out the the Day of Atonement in the law. In Leviticus chapter 16, this is the instruction. And Aaron, who is the high priest, shall offer his bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So Aaron is going to offer a sin offering of a bull for his own sin and the sin of his household. And then he shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. 
So Aaron's sins have now been uh, paid for with the bull. Now he's going to offer a sin offering for the people to God. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, this is from Leviticus 16, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. They would confess the sins onto the goat and then send that goat out far away from the people as far as the east is from the west. He would remove the sin of the people, that scapegoat. Of course, Caiaphas here in John 11, he's talking about sparing Israel's leaders. But on this side of the cross, as we look back on this, we can't help but see the double meaning. And John even explains it for us. We actually can see that Jesus is the good shepherd, but he's also the sin offering who has been devoted to death. He's also the scapegoat who removes the sin of his people. In fact, he's also the priest offering, uh, presenting the offering to the Lord. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. This is a simple, this is a simple prophecy of the cross. The, the fulfillment of the day of atonement. But on the lips of this high priest, this, this is evil. This is sheer cynicism. And yet as John explains... He's saying that the sacrifice of one innocent man would save the whole of God's covenant people. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. And interestingly, Jesus already explained this to Nicodemus. He's already said to one of them, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And if you're a Pharisee who is paying attention, maybe the words of Isaiah 53 pop into your mind. Peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You could go back and read all of chapter 53 of Isaiah. And as John clarifies for us in verses 51 and 52, he adds an important detail. A detail that wasn't really understood really until Acts chapter 15. Look at what he says in 51. He didn't say this, Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the children of the promise. See, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but only the children of God. Listen to what Peter had said in in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. 
Paul writes in verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9 says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good nor bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. All who repent and believe, Peter had said, Scripture says, promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. All who repent and believe, all who trust in Jesus, in his sinless life and atoning death and resurrection are children of the promise. And Christ died to gather us into one, into the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And so as verse 53 says, God in his sovereignty his sovereignty over all things, even salvation. He ordained that from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. This is just another step in the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. A plan for the fullness of time. And it brings us really, just briefly, to still more division and rejection. Pick it up in verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will come to the feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Part of the purpose of these verses is to move the story of Jerusalem, or to move the story to Jerusalem and really to the Passover, the final week of Jesus' life. There's a, a buzz in the temple about him that clearly annoyed and, and even infuriated the, the priests, the Pharisees. And they let everyone know that Jesus is a wanted man. And even though the crowd is still largely up in the air about him and his mission, they're after him. They're looking for him. But I want you to see one last thing. And that's the importance of verse 54 in the big picture. Jesus heads into the wilderness. To outsiders, this probably looks like he's afraid and in hiding. But he's already said back in chapter 10, 
verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus makes a theological statement here. No human court can force him to the cross. And so the closing kind of application that I would ask you to consider today is the same one that the people in the temple were considering. And that's this. What do you think? What do you think? For what did Jesus come to die? He died to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He died to redeem for himself a people for his own possession for the glory of the Father. God's plan for his people and the glory of his name is bigger than we can think or imagine. So what do you think? Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Amen. Lord, help us to understand these things. Help us to understand that we are great sinners and our Christ is a great Savior. Help us to understand that Christ died not just for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Help us to understand that your plan of salvation is so much bigger than we can imagine. That we might worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.